As you'll see on the screen there, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. When you found your place, please stand for the reading of God's word and remain standing for a time of prayer following. Good morning. Yes, tell me when y'all are ready. All right. <laughs> Been away for a while. <sighs> what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our deed, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He weeps. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Please bow your head. Lord, thank you for everything you do for us. Thank you for letting us be able to be here today and just keeping us safe, being able to come to church without having to live in fear. And I pray for our country, and I pray for Ben and all that we do. I hope we do in your name, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to start a new series. The name of the series is What is Real? We're going to answer the question, what is real? And we're going to go through the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John is a shorter book in the New Testament, but it's a book that is very direct, has a ton of doctrinal truths and theology, and I think it is something that is fitting for us today. So the title of my sermon today is No Fairy Tale Here. And I want to talk a little bit about what fairy tales are, because we've all grown up hearing fairy tales, right? Whether it's been at school or beside our bed at night from our mom and dad, we're all acquainted with them. They've made movies out of fairy tales. Fairy tales really entrench our society and our tradition and our culture. Disney has made billions of dollars off of fairy tales. Our children know all of the princesses, all of the characters in many of the fairy tales that have been taught for many, many generations. And I would say probably one of the most well-known fairy tales is that of Cinderella. Now, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the fairy tale Cinderella. I would, I would doubt that there's anyone here or anyone listening online who has never heard of the story of Cinderella. Did you know that the story of Cinderella is said to have begun in China around the year 1000 A.D.? I'm sure you remember the story of a young girl who was a stepchild living in a home where she was not treated well. Through a fairy godmother, she was able to attend a ball where she and the prince fell in love. And of course, the story ends happily ever after, as most fairy tales do, with the unlikely young girl and the prince together in marriage. The key to a fairy tale is that it is never understood or proclaimed as though it actually happened. Fairy tales are understood to always be make-believe. 
right? And there's been times in my faith where I've talked to someone and they may make the statement that, well, that Christianity stuff, it's just a fairy tale. It's just stories told by the Jewish people. They've kind of incorporated it into their traditions and into their culture. And now it's just in a book, and now we read about it, and that's all it really is. It's just stories, right? It's not actually true. Well, did you know that no fairy tale proclaims to be true? If you read uh, Cinderella in a book or if you watch it on the movie, it is uh, perpetrated and and put out there as though it is make-believe. There's things in it like a pumpkin turning into a chariot. No one's out here trying to say that that actually happened because no one understood it to be truth. They understood it to be make-believe. And that's what's important when we understand history, when we understand stories. Stories are told in a particular way. And a lot of times when someone accounts for the past of historical events, let's say the Civil War, for instance, and they're telling about a battle that happened in the Civil War, they never talk about that battle as though it was just a figment of their imagination or as though it was just a fairy tale. They talk about it as though it actually happened in real time here on this earth. Well, the same goes for the Bible. The same goes for the stories that we read in the Bible, and in particular, who Jesus is, what he did throughout his life, who he was and what he achieved. The Bible never explains Jesus in a way that is make-believe. It never says, well, this is just a great folklore that's been passed down through generations, and we're just going to retell the story. No, the Bible uses literal terms, terms that you might would hear in a court case about factual events that actually took place. Now, I might would believe for a moment someone who says the Bible is a fairy tale book if the Bible itself proclaimed to be that. But since the Bible itself does not proclaim to be a fairy tale but actually factual, truthful events that took place, then there's really only two options left for us about the Bible. Either either some crazy person wrote it and told a bunch of lies or it actually is true. Now, here's the problem with the lies. If a bunch of crazy people wrote it that actually were telling lies and said these events happened when they really didn't, how can you explain over 40 different authors over a span of several thousand years writing the narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and everything fitting together like a glove? How do you explain the hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that come to pass in the New Testament? How do you explain the perfect explanation in the 22nd Psalm of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that wasn't actually going to happen for another 800 years? If it was all just a big lie and a bunch of crazy people wrote it, then they did a really good job able to communicate beyond the span of time through some other universe or realm to tell each other and talk to each other about what exactly to write. It would have been the craziest phenomenon of all time. But in fact, that didn't happen. In fact, God, through the Holy Spirit, spoke to these men of old. They wrote what God told them to write because the actual author of the Bible is not those 40-something men, but it's the God of the universe. It's the Holy Spirit. And these men were obedient and inspired to write what God told them to write. There is so much evidence that supports that the Bible is indeed truth. So we find out the story of Jesus, the fairy tale argument, that doesn't work out. Because the Bible itself does not proclaim to be a fairy tale. So there is no fairy tale here. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, occupied a particular time in history. When you think of a linear timeline, there was a time on that timeline when Jesus of Nazareth was walking this earth. Okay, You look at maybe about 3 BC all the way up to maybe 30 AD. This was the time that Jesus occupied a particular time and space on this planet in the physical world. 
Evidence shows it. It happened. He did it. And there are very few ancient events that took place that have anywhere near as much evidence that they took place than the fact that Jesus Christ walked on this earth. And here in 1 John, Paul is going to, or John, I'm sorry, is going to be able to talk us through this. Because here we don't really know exactly who he was writing the letter of 1 John to. It was composed as though it was a letter, but it almost seems as though he left out the introduction and the conclusion. When you go through the New Testament, you're going to find a lot of New Testament books. If it's written as a letter, which many of the New Testament books were, in the uh, introduction, it's going to tell you who it's writing, to whom they're writing, which group or which person is receiving this letter. And many times it'll reiterate that in the conclusion. Well, for some reason in 1 John, we don't have that. Maybe John just didn't include that. For one reason or another, the Holy Spirit did not see fit to put it in the canon of the Bible. But what we can conclude from what John writes here is that there were some kind of issues going on in the first century church. Some issues that were really incorporated into the resurrection, that Jesus did not bodily rise from the dead. So here, John is going to be, begin this treatise and this explanation of why Jesus is who he said he was, and he in fact bodily rose from the dead. And he begins here to be able to speak in terms that speak of factual evidence that Jesus is who he said he was. Now, I had COVID back in January. Many of you in here have also had COVID. Some of us had it really bad. Some of us didn't have it so bad. Some of us had it and we didn't know we had it, right? There was just a huge spectrum of different um, levels of, of how it's affected us. But one of the strangest symptoms I've heard, and I actually experienced myself from COVID, is the loss of taste or smell. Now, I didn't lose my taste, but I did lose my smell. And it was the weirdest thing in the world. Because for all my life, I've been able to smell certain things. Well, all of a sudden, I'm around things that I should be smelling, and I don't smell anything. It's really weird. We get, we get so reliant upon our senses, whether it's our sight, our hearing, our smelling, whatever it may be. And I was actually, uh, Hannah and I were over at one of her cousin's houses, and she has these essential oils, right? Well, she's got one that is like lemon extract or something like that. She said, well, smell this. She said, if you can't smell this, she said, you've definitely got COVID. So, so she took the top off, and I put that lemon extract under my nose, and I went, as hard as I could, nothing. It was like breathing fresh air. I couldn't smell a thing. And it was the weirdest thing in the world because I could look at the label, I could use my sense, my eyes, and I could read lemon extract, I could look inside the bottle, and I could see there was some liquid in there, and I could even shake it and hear it and hear that liquid swishing around. So I knew the stuff was in there, but my nose was not telling me the truth, right? I had to use my eyes. I had to use my ears. I had to use some of my other senses to really confirm what actually was there. Because if all I relied on was my smell, then I would have concluded that that bottle was empty or that it had water in it right? But because I was able to utilize my other senses, I was able to understand that something was wrong with my smell. You know, um, one good thing about that, though, I will say this, is I have some young kids, <laughs> one, one of whom is still in diapers, so that was kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, that, that was really nice. So, so when we think through this, okay, and what I'm trying to get at is how do we know what's real? How do we know what is truth? Well, one of the best ways that we understand truth is by what our senses tell us. So when I'm out in the world, okay, let's say it's a sunny day and I'm outside, okay? 
For one, I can see the sun shining. Two, I can feel the warmth on my body, right? So based upon what information I'm taking in through my eyes and through my sense of touch, I can conclude the truth is that the sun is shining and it's a sunny day. That is one way to perceive truth and understand truth. And we do that every day in life through our experiences. As we go throughout life, we understand reality and events that happen because we see them, because we hear them, because we smell them, we taste, and we can feel. And that's how we understand that truth. So there's a branch in philosophy called metaphysics. And what metaphysics is, is it's really the discussion and understanding of first things. And when I say first things, I'm talking about existence, knowledge, time, and space, all of these things that really are the basic foundation of reality. So there are philosophers out there who will spend their entire lives trying to study how do we, how do we exist and what defines existence. How did knowledge begin and what defines knowledge? How is time a reality and how did time begin? What is space? How does an object occupy a particular space in the universe? And all these questions. And in reality, we cannot get away from that fact even in Christianity. But the beautiful thing about Christianity is, is that we have the answers. We know how we became uh, creatures. We know why we exist. We know how the earth and the worlds came into existence. We know that it came by the word of God and by his power, right? So we're able to understand these truths. We're able to understand metaphysics as Christians because the testimony of the word of God answers those most difficult questions in life. Well, there is another branch of philosophy known as epistemology. And what epistemology is, is you have these truths out here. When we look around and we see, okay, we're all in existence here. As I look around, I can walk up to you and I can touch you and I can confirm that you are here and that you are real and that you have a physical body. But how do I know that's true? You might say, well, duh, Ben, because you can see me. But there has to be something more to that. Now, as John was speaking to these people in the first century, there was this group of people known as Gnostics. And what Gnostics would say is, is they would say everything that is physical, that you can touch and that you can see is evil, and everything that is spiritual is good. So they would have all these weird understandings of the material world, and they would even go as far as to say everything that I see is an illusion. Yeah, you're there. And yeah, I can touch you, but all that is, is that's my senses tricking me. That's basically an illusion that's not really there. My brain is creating these things, and everything I see isn't really there. So these were some of the things that John was having to deal with. So that goes back to the question of epistemology. How do I know the truth? How do I know it exists? How do I know what is right? Well, that's the questions here that John is going to begin to discuss with us. How do I know that a particular piece of knowledge is truth or not? So as John delves into this, he begins to give us really two methods by which we can understand what is real and what is truth. Okay, he begins to discuss that with us. So John is writing about truth and how it is acquired and how it is known. So he was dealing with many of these things, and the Gnostics were basically the main one. If you go to Colossians chapter 2, you're going to find in the Bible, and you don't have to turn there, but um, Paul actually dealt with this at the church at Colossae, where the people were basically abusing their bodies because what they would say is, is my body is evil, all the spiritual realm is good, so I must starve my body, I must inflict harm on my body because my body is evil. And what the Gnostics were doing were they were taking this warped 
perverted view of God and theology, and they were trying to attach Christian terms to it, like Jesus and God and heaven. And it was confusing a lot of Christians. And listen, we see that a lot today in a lot of the cultic practices that we see throughout our world. Two of the major ones, of course, is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, which are the Jehovah's Witnesses. And those two organizations attach Christian terms to their theology to confuse people. When in reality, their doctrine is no more Christian than a man on the moon. Islam's probably got more doctrinal truths in it than the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, okay? That's how bad off they are. And we see that Satan won't usually come out and jump out from behind a bush and say, Hey, I'm Satan and I'm going to deceive you, right? Yeah, you know me, right? Believe everything I say. No, he doesn't work like that. For one, that doesn't work, right? He takes on the image of truth. He, he uses the terminology of truth. He kind of gets in the circles of truth and he begins to sow these little seeds of doubt and falsehood. And that's how he is able to deceive millions and millions of people. Did you know that in the state of Utah, the number one Christian, and they're not Christian, but they claim to be, denomination is Mormons. That's the number one. And did you know that if you believe Mormon doctrine, you will not go to heaven? Because Mormons don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe that Jesus is the creator. Listen, I, you can call him whatever you want. If you don't believe in the Jesus who is God, you don't believe in the Jesus who can save. I can call you Jesus, but that doesn't mean you're going to save me. Amen? So it's sin, it's wickedness, and it's falsehood, and we have to see it for what it is. And John here is going to teach us how we can know what is truth. So the first method that John uses is through the senses, right? And in philosophy, that's called empiricism. So when, when you view the world through your senses and you're able to take in knowledge and truth through your senses, like if I look at this desk and I say it's a certain color, I'm taking in the truth based upon what my eyes see. So these are through the senses. And John really hits on that beginning in verse 1. So let's look at verse 1, 1 John chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life? Now, I want to take just a moment and speak, first of all, about that introductory phrase, what was from the beginning? You may see that there's some similarities there with two other introductions and two other books of the Bible. The first being the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, then you fast forward to the book of John in the Gospel of John, not 1 John, but one of the Gospels of John written by the same man who wrote this. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So now we get to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and he says this, what was from the beginning? Here, this statement literally means what has existed from eternity past. Basically, what he is about to talk about, this introductory phrase, is leading us into the fact, I'm about to talk about something that has no beginning, that before all of you were, he was. Before anything was, he was. He's always existed and he always will exist. This is the introduction that he is leading us into. It's the same introduction we find in uh, John 1, the same introduction we find in Genesis 1. In the beginning, before time existed this was, okay? So what is this? Well, it begins there in one. We have heard this. We have seen this with our eyes. We have observed this, and we have touched with our hands. Now he's going to tell us what this is concerning the word of life. 
Well, first of all, I want to look at the different senses that he talks about. Now, remember, the Apostle John, the one writing this book, was the same John that at the Last Supper was lying on Jesus' bosom. He's the same John in the Gospel of John that refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. In the book of John, not 1 John, but the Gospel of John, John never calls himself John. If you see the name John in that book, it's always about another John. John the Baptist or a different one, right? But he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved because he had such a deep and intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus. There's no other disciple in Scripture that had as close of a relationship with Jesus as John. So now John is writing this, and he's writing it in such an intimate way because he actually spent time with Jesus Christ on this earth. Jesus' ministry was about three years, right? And Jesus spent more of those three years ministering to his disciples than anyone else. He didn't spend all of his time in the big crowds, though he did speak to big crowds. He didn't spend all of his time at the table of sinners, though he did spend time at those situations and those arenas. More time than anything, Jesus spent time with his disciples. And three in particular that he spent the most time with, Peter, James, and John. And then out of those three, he spent the most with John. So John is not writing from a theoretical position as though he's assuming these things happened. John is writing from a position, I knew Jesus, I touched Jesus, I talked to Jesus, I spent time alone with Jesus, I saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, I took care of Jesus' mother when he was hanging on the cross. Listen, Jesus and I, we were tight. And if anybody's qualified to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you right now, it's the Apostle John. Nobody else that has ever lived on this planet has more to say about Jesus than John. So as John is telling this, he's speaking from a position of authority and a position that we ought to listen to, right? So what was from the beginning? We find out that what was from the beginning was the word of life. First thing he says, excuse me, is what we have heard. So he's saying that as I spent time with Jesus, I heard his voice. As I spent time with Jesus, he told me, Truths. As I spent time with Jesus, I heard him speak to others. I used the sense of hearing and I was able to take in truth and reality and what is real in the moment. And I was able to understand that this man Jesus was speaking then. Then he says what we have seen with our eyes. He's saying, listen, not only did I hear this Jesus, you might say, well, John, your hearing's messed up. Well, wait just a minute. I didn't just hear Jesus. I saw Jesus. I saw him with my eyes. I saw him heal the lame. I saw him raise Lazarus. I saw him do all these miraculous things. Not only did I hear the Lord Jesus, but I saw him. And then it says, and what we observed in verse 1, what we have observed. So you may say, well, isn't that the same thing as seeing? Isn't that the same thing as uh, looking at with your eyes? Well, it's a little bit different. The Greek there actually means to behold. So what John is saying here when he says, and we have observed, what he's saying is, is that based upon what I saw, based upon what I heard, based upon how I could touch him and know that he was there, I beheld God. I beheld Jesus. He's saying, after taking in all this information, the only conclusion that I could have when I sat there and looked at him was that this is God. This is the king of the universe. I beheld him, and I was able to understand his glory as he sat there with me. 
So we go on down and it talks about touch. We know that even after he rose from the dead, that Jesus appeared for some uh, 40 days after his resurrection. And the disciples touched him. We talked about this a little bit in Bible study this morning. But the disciples even saw Jesus eat. Now a spirit can't eat. All right, A spirit has no flesh, it has no stomach, it has no way to hold food. But Jesus, after he rose from the dead, it says that he ate fish, which means he had a physical stomach that could hold chewed food. Last time I checked, you had to have a body to be able to eat food. And this is what John is saying. He's saying, I touched this Jesus. I saw this Jesus. I heard this Jesus. And do you understand the pronoun that he's using there in verse 1? He says, what we have seen, what we have heard. He's saying, this is my testimony, but my testimony is not the only testimony. Not only did I see it, but Peter saw it. Not only did Peter see it, but Thomas saw it. Not only did Thomas, but all these other people, over 500, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, saw Jesus in his resurrected body. He's basically saying, I'm one of the many who used my senses to view and understand that Jesus indeed rose from the dead, and he indeed is who he said he was. So there we have that beautiful beautiful testimony. So we get down to the word of life. As he talks about Jesus, he said, now I'm saying all these things concerning the word of life. He's yet to actually use the name Jesus. So you may be saying, well, Ben, how do we know this is Jesus? How do we know he's actually talking about Jesus? Maybe he's talking about some knowledge, or maybe he's talking about some uh, vision that someone had, right? Well, if you look in John 1.1, I just quoted that scripture a few minutes ago, but in the gospel of John chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, in the beginning was the word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So now we know that when you go down into John chapter 1 and verse 14, we find out who the Word is. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There we know then in the Gospel of John that when John is talking about the Word, capital W, he's talking about the Word who became flesh. In other words, the God who became flesh, the God who stepped out of heaven and took on human flesh, became the God-man and died on the cross. But then we also look in John chapter 1, verse 4. And if you want to, you can go ahead and turn over there. I'm going to turn over there uh, quickly. Because now remember, we have the same author here that wrote 1 John and wrote the Gospel of John. So as he is using common terminology, we can actually allow Scripture to testify of Scripture, and we can find out who John is talking about without even going further in the book of 1 John. So when we look in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, John says this, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Well, first of all, he said, in him was life, but then he talks about that life being an object, being a person. That life was the light of men. So now as we look at the same author in the Gospel of John, we find out the word is Jesus. We find out the life is Jesus. We find out that as John is talking about the word of life in 1 John chapter 1, that he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll continue to affirm that as we go throughout Scripture. You know, one thing that's very interesting, and you may not be as amazed by this as I am, but this is just something that amazes me. If you go to the pond or you, uh, even in a pool, and you take a stick, right? Stick that stick down in the water, about half of it in the water, half of it out of the water. Now, what does it look like as you're looking at that stick in the water? It looks like it's bent, right? 
So you're like, man, that, I'm telling you, that stick is bent. Look at that thing, right? You pull the stick out, and it's straight. So then you have to ask yourself, well, when I stick that stick in the water, it's got to be bent because it looks like it's bent, right? But I pull it out, and it's not. So is it bending itself as it goes in the water and then straightening itself back out when it comes out? Well, we understand that that's not reasonable. And what you do is when you pull that stick back out, you're able to fill it with your hands and realize that it wasn't bent to begin with. But then even when you stick it in, you can put your hands in the water and fill to see if it's bent and it's not. So as we look at this, the reason that John is expressing that he not only saw Jesus, that he not only heard Jesus, but he also touched Jesus is because he understands that, yes, one of your senses could very well be flawed. And your eyes can play tricks on you, right? And he probably knew that the people of this day and even the people of that day would say, oh, you guys just had too much to drink. You were seeing uh, hallucinations and all this other stuff. And he's saying, wait a minute. It wasn't just my eyes that saw Jesus. I heard him and I touched him. And it wasn't just me, by the way. You go to 1 Corinthians 15 and it was hundreds of people that would have testified to the very same thing. There's evidence. He's building a case here and he's not expecting us just to believe on a whim or just to be told a fairy tale, but he's expressing this in factual terms with evidence because he's stating this as though it really happened. And the evidence shows that indeed Jesus walked the earth and indeed he rose from the dead. So the first thing we saw is this, that truth is through the senses, right? That is one method that we understand truth. The second way is truth through testimony. Now, we're a little bit limited in certain ways. And the reason I say that is, is we are existing bodily on this planet in the year 2021, right? So we didn't have the luxury to be on the earth the three years that Jesus conducted his earthly ministry. So we're a little bit uh, hindered by the fact that we weren't actually able to go back and see Jesus for ourselves, right? But there's another way to understand truth that happened in a time that we weren't able to see, and that's through testimony. And what I mean by testimony is, is even though we couldn't be like John, and we couldn't see Jesus with our eyes, and we couldn't touch him with our hands, and we couldn't hear him with our ears, we can read the testimony, the eyewitness accounts of those who did. And we understand that whether it's in the secular world or whether it's in religious uh, theology or whether it's in spiritual terms, that eyewitness testimony is a valid way of understanding real events. It's a valid way of knowing what actually happened. And I think we used this um, example last week, and we talked about the fact that these wars of old took place, you know, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, whatever war it may be, and none of us are doubting that they took place, but none of us saw them take place either, right? A lot of people say, well, you know what, Ben? Before I'm going to believe in this Jesus, he's going to have to show up to me in the flesh, and he's going to have to introduce himself to me. Well, that's not reasonable because you believe historical events that you were not able to see. But for some reason, when it comes to Jesus, you want to throw up some red flags and say, well, I've got to have extra proof. This Jesus thing has a higher burden of proof than these other things. So, so Jesus, you need to show up in flesh. Listen, the Word of God in Romans chapter 1, we're taught that we are without excuse if we don't accept Jesus. Because of all the evidence that God has given us, the first of being creation. 
When you walk out and you look at that sky, you realize, as Chase has mentioned before to the students, that the planet is just close enough to the sun that it doesn't burn up, but it's not too far away that it doesn't freeze into an ice cube. And it just happens to be perfect for life, and it just happens to have an atmosphere that we can breathe, and it just happens to produce water that we can drink, and it just happens to have soil where we can grow food, and it just happens to have all of these things, and it just happens to be that the human race is exercising dominion over the rest of creation, just as the Bible said, the evidence is there. When people stand before God and they have refused to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, God is going to be able to look at them with all sovereignty, with all justice, with everything of fairness and say, you didn't, you didn't know me, you are without excuse, depart from me, I never knew you. You know why? And I'm just going to say it plain, that's just pure stupidity. To reject the Jesus Christ of all heaven. And listen, I'm not going to go out here and tell a lost person they're stupid. Because I don't want to make them mad. I want them to know Jesus. But I'm telling you, the more I read this, the more God speaks to me, the, the longer I'm in the faith, the more real this becomes. I'll be honest with you, there was a time that I doubted God existed. There was a time when I doubted, maybe this evolution thing is true. I actually thought at one point. And then, <laughs> amen, Joey. And then I got into the Word. And God began to speak to me, and he said, you're foolish. If you think this thing happened by chance, you're foolish. Sometimes you just got to be logical. And listen, all people say, well, you can't be logical, you got to have faith. Listen, I'm telling you, Christianity is the most logical faith there is. It makes sense. It answers all the hard questions. No other faith tradition is going to answer the questions that Christianity answers. No other faith tradition is going to have a book this complex that fits together like a beautiful glove. I'm telling you guys, it's truth. It's truth. And I'm saying this with 100% certainty. So as we look at verses 2 through 3, we're going to see how John begins to say, not only do I know the truth because I saw it, but you can know the truth because I saw it. In other words, because of my eyewitness accounts and many others, you can know that it's truth because the evidence is just that strong. Beginning in verse 2, 1 John 1, the Bible says that that life, talking about the word of life, was revealed. Some of your um, versions will say manifested. And we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We go to verse 3. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we begin to have a pattern here that kind of spills over from verse 1. He begins to talk about what we have seen, right? So he begins to continue the fact that I saw Jesus as John, the Apostle John. I saw Jesus, but now he's beginning to translate it into, I am telling you what I saw. Now because I saw it, I am proclaiming this truth to you. We see the scene. And then after he talks about what I have seen, okay, what we have seen in verse 2, he says, now we testify and declare or proclaim to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. He's saying because God took on flesh and took on a physical body and inhabited a particular time in history and a particular space on this planet, because I saw him and I understand him and I know him, I am now going to take what I know to be the truth because of what I've seen and heard and touched, and I'm going to tell you everything I know about him so that you, based upon my eyewitness account, can know that what I'm telling you 
is truth. You can believe in the same Jesus that I saw based upon my eyewitness testimony. You get on to verse 3 and the Bible says this, we ha- what we have seen and heard we also declare to you. So again, he goes through two of the senses, seen and heard, and he says, because we have seen and heard him, we are now proclaiming that truth to you. Isn't that what we do as believers anyway? You know, when I got saved, no, I did not physically see Jesus like the apostles did. All right? No, I did not touch his physical resurrected body like the apostles did. But when the Holy Spirit indwelled my soul, I knew my life had changed. I knew something was different. I knew that based upon my confession that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus rose from the dead, that I'm a sinner and that I needed forgiveness for my sins. Upon my acknowledgement of that and accepting Jesus, I knew that my life was changed. And based upon Matthew 28, now based upon the change that happened in my life, I'm now to go out just like John, just like the Apostle John, and say, hey, I can proclaim the gospel to you because of what happened to me. You can be saved just like me. And you know, one thing that people relate to better than anything is when you talk about how messed up you are. Now, and that's easy for me, right? So when I start talking about somebody, you know, man, I was lost without hope in sin. They can start relating to that stuff. You know why? Because they're sinners too. Now, I'm not saying just beat yourself up for an hour straight because that gets old. But I'm saying give a little bit of your testimony. Let me tell you where I came from. And this Jesus changed me. And I'm telling you, if he can change me, he can change you. And people will relate to that in a way that's a lot different than if I just hit them with a bunch of theology or if I just hit them with a bunch of do's and don'ts. This is what happened to me. Now, somebody can argue with theology. Somebody can argue with you trying to portray historical events. But no one's going to argue with your personal testimony. Nobody's going to tell you, no, that didn't happen to you. Nobody's going to say, no, you're lying. They're going to listen to you. And that's how you can convey the gospel in one of the best ways, is because of what happened to you. And this is what John's doing. He's saying, listen, I was with Jesus. I'm just telling you what I saw. I'm just telling you what I heard. I'm just telling you what I touched. I'm just telling you what I beheld. And I'm telling you, he's the real deal. We go down and we understand that this proclaiming of the gospel is for the purpose of fellowship. So as we talk about this testimony, this eyewitness account from John, the fact that the evidence points that Jesus is who he said he was, John is saying here in these first four verses, the reason I'm proclaiming this gospel to you is so that you can have fellowship with us in verse 3. He says, what we have seen and heard we also declare to you. Why is he even saying the gospel? So that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm conveying the truth of what I know as I have been an eyewitness to who Jesus is and His death, burial, and resurrection. I'm conveying this truth to you so you can have fellowship with me and so you can also have fellowship with the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm telling you this so you'll get saved is what he's saying. I'm telling you this so you'll realize your sinful state. You'll realize that God sent his son to die for you and save you and so that you can ask for forgiveness and so you can go to heaven one day just like me. That's what John is saying there. Isn't that the reason we should tell people about Jesus? Listen, it should break your heart to think somebody that you know or somebody that you're close to or one of your neighbors could die and go to hell. It should break your heart. And if it doesn't, you need to get on your knees and you need to beg God to give you a heart for lost people. That's what Pole Creek's here for. We are here in this community as a local church to lead people to Jesus. And listen, people coming from other churches and joining, that's fine. 
You know, if God's leading them here, that's good, but I don't want that to be the sole way we grow our church. We need to be growing this church because people up Milk Sit Cove are getting saved. We need to grow this church because people up Hooker's Gap are getting saved. Because a lost and a dying world is realizing that the God of heaven loves them and died for them and made a way for them to go to heaven. That's why and how we need to grow this church. You know, you think about all these different uh, falsehoods that are out there today. You know, a lot of times if you go knock on somebody's door that you don't know, the first thing they think is you're a Jehovah's Witness, right? And the sad thing is the ones who have the truth are the ones who don't go knock on doors. The ones who have the truth are the ones who don't tell people about Jesus. The ones who have the truth are the ones that stay holed up in their houses just hoping that somebody else will go and, and tell somebody about Jesus. But then you got the cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. I mean, I remember when I was in Honduras with Brother Ronnie Gentry there a while back, and there were some Mormons in white button-up shirts riding through a village in Honduras spreading falsehoods and lies to Hondurans, right? And, and using the term of Jesus, using all these biblical terms. Listen, the devil's at work. He's sending his liars out there, and they're spreading the false gospel. We need to be about the Lord's work, and we need to be out there spreading the truth. We've got something to tell. Just like Brother John here, the Apostle John in 1 John, he's saying, the reason I'm telling you is so you'll get saved. The reason we ought to tell somebody about Jesus is so they can come to Christ and get saved, so their name can be written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, it's important to know which Jesus we're talking about. You know, you might be witnessing to somebody that's, oh, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I'm good. And if you say, okay, and, and, and you know, you let it rest at that, you may have just left somebody in a lie. Because to Jesus to them may be Michael the archangel. Did you know that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the archangel? A Mormon is going to talk to Jesus, talk to you about Jesus all day, and they're not going to be offended or anything. But did you know that a Mormon thinks Jesus is a spirit brother of Satan, a creation of God? Hey, a Muslim will even talk to you about Jesus. Did you know that? But you know what a Muslim thinks Jesus is? He's just a prophet. And let me tell you what. If the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in their Jesus, if the Mormons believe in their Jesus, and if the Muslims believe in their Jesus, they'll split hell wide open. Because that's not a Jesus who saves. The Jesus who isn't a God, but is the God, the creator, the sustainer, the one who is from eternity past, only he can save. And in this day and age, we don't need to just say, hey, do you believe in Jesus? We say, do you believe in the Jesus who is the creator? Do you believe in the Jesus who is God? Do you believe in the Jesus who has no beginning? And then you can have an effective conversation with someone. It's that important. Today... John dealt with the Gnostics back then. We're still dealing with the same Eastern mindset, the same cultish practices today in our modern-day world. We've got to be careful to express the truth that we have gleaned from the testimony of eyewitnesses. So we understand that we can get truth through our senses, that the first-century apostles did just that as they viewed Jesus, as they understood Jesus, as they touched Jesus. But then we also understand that we're limited in that, that we couldn't go back then and see Jesus ourselves. So now we are taking the eyewitness testimony of those who have and understanding that is valid evidence and proof that Jesus is who he said he is. And then finally, we're going to find that those truths that we are able to glean ultimately bring us joy. We find that in verse 4 of 1 John chapter 1, if you'll look at verse 4. John says this, we, and you notice he keeps saying we because he's saying it's not just me that's testifying this. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You know what? In today's society, joy is really important. 
And joy is something that's sought after by every walk of life. It doesn't matter what country you're from, what your upbringing is. People want joy. People want to feel good. People want to have hope for their life and for the future. And we look around our world, and that's just not the case for the majority of this world. You know, I've been in, in Mozambique, and I've been in South Africa. I've been in Honduras and a few of these third world countries. And you go through there, and the people have no hope. They've never heard about Jesus. They have no understanding of the meaning and the purpose of their life. I mean, could you imagine living thinking that there is no purpose for you? Thinking that maybe you were just an accident? Or thinking that you're just here by chance and that, you know, if you live and die, it doesn't matter to anybody? Did you know that God teaches that every human soul has an eternal purpose? That every human soul was created in his image and that every human soul is of eternal value. Only Christianity teaches that, by the way. Only Christianity teaches the value of not just some human lives, but every human life. And that's something, let me tell you, that's something I can get behind. That my God loves everything. Everybody, no matter their skin color, no matter their nationality, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their background, no matter their economic status, my Jesus loves everybody and everyone has a purpose. So when you think about that, you think about maybe a little girl over in some African tribe who's never heard about Jesus. You know, I think about Al and Susan here who were Bible translators in Papua New Guinea for some 41 years. And, and you think about these people in these villages who, if somebody never goes and tells them, they're never going to hear about Jesus. They're going to live their whole life thinking they don't have a purpose. Today, God is calling you. I'm telling you, you may say, well, Ben, that's just for the preachers. That's just for the missionaries. You know, I'll go to church and I'll sit on a pew. But, you know, when it comes to telling people about Jesus and supporting missions and maybe even being a missionary of myself, you know, that's not something I'm for. Let me tell you something. One day when you stand before God... That's all that's going to matter. Your promotions at work, they're not going to matter. How big your house is, they ain't going to matter. How big your 401k is, not going to matter. How many lake houses you've got, ain't going to matter. All that's going to matter is what did you do for Jesus. And I'm not saying he's going to say you can't get in, but once you're saved, you're always saved, and we believe that. But the Bible teaches of the judgment seat of Christ where Christians will stand before the great judge, Jesus Christ himself, Your works will be laid out on an altar. Holy fire is going to fall, and it's going to try your works. And the Bible says that many of your works, if done out of the wrong motivation, are going to burn up like hay and stubble. But those works that you did for God's glory and for the salvation of souls, they are going to appear after that fire tries them as precious stones. And you're going to be able to pick up those precious stones, and you're going to be able to give them to the king who died on the cross and rose from the dead and say, Lord, I love you, and this is my gift to you today. Man, I'd hate to stand there empty-handed. The one who had nail-scarred hands, and I believe we'll still be able to see those scars, by the way, when we go to heaven because he's still got the same physical body that he had when he rose from the dead. When we stand before him, we're going to see the marks on his body that he paid the price for us. And for me to stand before him and say, Lord, you saved me and I appreciate it, but I didn't do anything with my life after the fact. Wow. The Bible says on that day, some will suffer loss. And you know what that means? Shame, humiliation. You say, Ben, there's no such thing as shame and humiliation in heaven. At that judgment, there will be. And there will be a lot of Christians hanging their head that day. I'm telling you, there is no shortage of lost souls. And you know the only way you're going to have joy? I said this in my class this morning. The only way you're going to have joy as a Christian is four different things. And I hate to simplify it like this, but sometimes I need simplification, don't you? Number one, you've got to be reading the Word. 
you got to be taking the word in. Number two, you've got to be praying. Amen. Number three, you need to be a part of a Bible-believing church where you can receive encouragement from other believers. And number four, you've got to be sharing your faith. And if you're not actively doing those four things, my friends, your joy is not going to be full. Your joy is not going to be complete because you're going to be lacking and forgoing some of the greatest privileges that we have as children of God. So here, John is saying we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, you know, happiness and joy are a little bit different, and I'll be closing here in a second. Happiness is fleeting, right? Happiness is here and goes. You know, one thing I like to joke with my wife about is that I get really happy when I find out she saved money. <laughs> she gets really happy when she finds out she can spend money, right? But that's not joy. Joy is one of those things that doesn't come and go. Joy is steady. Joy is coming from knowing where I'm going to go when I die. Joy is knowing that I have purpose. Joy is knowing that I have value and that I'm worshiping the God of heaven. And that joy doesn't go away. No matter how hard your life gets, no matter what you suffer in life, that joy sustains you. And this is what John is saying. He's saying, listen, guys, I want my joy. He's saying our joy. He's saying that our joy may be complete. He's talking about the apostles and the preachers of the gospel. He's saying we want our joy to be complete, and the only way our joy is going to be complete is if we proclaim what we've seen to you and who Jesus Christ is. Today, church, I'm telling you the same thing. The only way your joy is going to be complete is if you actively share the gospel with the people in our community. Remember our mission statement? You can find it on our website. If you go to our website under our menu about us, you're going to find our mission statement. Our mission statement is pretty simple. It says something like, we are, we, our mission, we, we're here because we want to equip and disciple our church to go out and reach Candler and the community with the gospel. And that's what we want. We want you to go and share your faith. And I pray that God will give you opportunities this week. I pray that you'll do it. I pray that you'll step out on faith. And you'll be like the brother, brother John there. That your joy will be full because you were faithful to proclaim the truth. Let's pray. Bow your heads with me this morning.